seated and we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back as uh, they go and learn, echo what uh, Jason made the announcement of. We do have Kids Day today uh, following the service, all the details there I'm sure gave it all. I just, I, I'm excited that um, one of the things we say about our kids ministry and our youth ministry often is uh, our goal is formation and not fun. Now, yes, we do want them to have fun, but we don't sit around thinking about what can we make the most fun environment for our kids. No, we want um, to help grow them up into disciples of Jesus. And so, uh, now that's primarily uh, done at home. Your job as the parents, as the primary faith influencers of your kids. And you can do this in super practical ways. Um, just uh, one thing we do is uh, on Mondays on the way to school, um, our playlist on the way to school are typically the songs that we sang uh, the previous day at service. So I make sometimes a little note. My kids remember we play these songs. Tuesday is uh, old school day. So, um, you know, old school, like Chris Tomlin stuff. Um, no, we play, when we play hymns, it's funny, uh, Ellie told me on just last week, she said, Dad, for so long, I thought when you said hymns, that meant those were the songs that the men were supposed to sing. And one of these days, we would get to hers. Um, not it. Uh, anyway, so maybe you would think of creative ways that you could sing God's truths with your kiddos. I talk about them. I'm excited the kids' uh, ministry is doing that today. Um, open your Bibles if you brought, brought them to James chapter 1. Uh, we're going to continue in the book of James. Uh, we are going through it thematically. So as he tackles them in uh, chapter 1, we're kind of using that as kind of a launch um, into the topic or the theme in which he addresses. And I remind you, this was a letter that was meant to be read in the churches that were scattered, right, because of Roman oppression. He says that in, uh, in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so these were uh, really young Christians, most of them. Most people think the Gospels weren't, weren't written before James. James was actually preceded the Gospels. And so this would have been, um, after the Old Testament, this would have been maybe the first like complete letter that they would ever be able to read or get their hands on. And today we're going to talk about wisdom. So this week and next week, what God says about wisdom. And here's the truth. I need a way of life that keeps me close to God. I need God's wisdom. I need to depend on him, not myself, not on worldly wisdom. We're going to talk about that a little next week. But I need something that keeps my mind focused on his presence. You know, we're talking about singing. The book of Psalms was a book that the uh, Hebrew people would sing at different times, around different festivals, just like we have uh, Christmas music, right? Anybody already listening to Christmas music? Okay, guilty. I'm the only one. Okay. Um, yeah, just first time it gets below 80. We go ahead and crank that Christmas music up. But they would have these uh, certain songs that they would sing around certain rhythms of life and festivals that they kept. And that was a way that they would keep their mind focused on who God was. Now, there's a myth, and many of us subconsciously believe it. It's not true. It's a myth that being a Christian is mostly about believing the right things. It's one of the great illusions that information alone will produce, produce transformation in our lives, and it will not. Information is very important, but it's not sufficient. 
It's fascinating to me that the name that was given to the church in the early days of Christianity were followers of the way, not believers of the creed. They were followers of the way. There was something that looked radically different about their lives, not just their belief system. As a matter of fact, when they did use the word belief, these are believers, they weren't using it as we use it, (coughs) assenting to a certain moral doctrine. It was the word trust or faith that they would use. Those are the people who trust the way of Jesus. So not believers in the creed, but followers of the way. And this is all leading into this point that James is making, and I want to read it with you. In James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only receiving, uh, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty... And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is God's word. Remember the theme of the entire book of James is genuine faith or true faith or faith that works. James is helping us identify what true faith, genuine faith, really looks like. The first topic he covered was suffering. What does genuine faith, many people might claim to be followers of the way or Christians, but what, how can we really know that their faith, how can you know that your faith is real faith? The first su- subject he gets to is what, what does it look like when you suffer? That our suffering should reveal in us, right? We should be joyful because of what it's producing. We should be patient and we should endure by prayer. Here's the next thing he's going to talk about. It's really a test that he gives us to evaluate the genuineness of our faith. Is what do we do with the word of God? Let me start maybe with this question that might help diagnose, kind of get to where we're headed How much time do you spend a week exposed to the Word of God? How much time do you spend a week exposed to the Word of God? Well, you're here this morning, so that means at least an hour a week we could could say if we kind of stretch it right. And suppose you're above average as a Christian and you actually come every Sunday. The average Bible-believing Christian attends local gathering of their church one and a half times a month. That's the average but you're above average, so you're here, so you're, we're going to give you credit. That, that, that's an hour a week, and maybe you're one of these super Christians. You actually came to equipping class today an hour earlier than the service, and I encourage you to come to those things. We walk through the Scripture. That would be two hours a week, and let's just say you're a radical Christian, and you, you also participate in our, uh, in our small group uh, missional communities or a huddle. We'll give you another hour a week for that. That would be three. And let's just say you just really love the Lord. 
and, and you're given, you're reading God's word 10 minutes every morning. You get another hour for that. So it's four hours a week, again, that, that you're giving, you're being exposed to the word of God. It was 160 hours in the week, 112 waking hours. And if you get four hours being exposed to the word, that's about 4% of your week. Now, you ask, what, what's ideal and what's the big deal? And I'm going to let you kind of come up with that answer on your own. But we see James is pretty passionate about this, and let me tell you why. God cannot be seen, right? There's no one of us in here. Now, of course, the psalm says the heavens declare the glory of God, but, but we've, never, we've never hung out or met him. We've never seen his face. He can't be seen in that way, and that's the way it was designed to be. So we know who God is, Scripture says, through Jesus. Hebrews 1 said Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. But that brings up another problem. We've never seen Jesus, right? Unless you lived in first century Palestine, you hadn't seen him either. So here's the dilemma. Our responsibility as Christians is to take people to the invisible God by way of the invisible Christ. But the only way that we can do that, the only way we can know the invisible Christ is through the written word of God. Now, we don't worship the word of God. That would be bibliolatry. We don't do that. But we look at scripture as a means to knowing who Jesus is. And as we know who Jesus is, then we see the character and person of God the Father. Scripture is exclusively the means by which a person, the person of Christ, is revealed to us. And Christ is exclusively the means by which the Father is revealed to us. Maybe I could say it in this way to put it bluntly. There is no way to be aggressively molding it, molded into the image of God without a discipline to and love for the written word of God. So much so that an appetite for God is really an appetite for Jesus. And an appetite for Jesus is really an appetite for the written word of God. And when we open the word of God, living and active that the Holy Spirit begins to work and illuminate these. That's why it's living and active. It's not just a history book we run to, but it has the power to transform. So you can't take a scalpel and dissect God from Christ. We would say that would be heresy. Nor can you separate Christ from his word. And this is why the text is so important. And here's the theme or the question that we're confronted when we look at this text in James. It's the same confrontation that those in the first century encountered when they would have read this letter. And it's really a series of questions. Here's the first question, diagnostic question for your heart. It's an imperative meaning it's asking you specifically, are you hearing the word of God? Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, or beloved brothers and sisters. This is James and his pastor's heart speaking to people that he loved dearly. What does he say? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We should be quick to hear. There are things that keep us from hearing the word of God, mainly our own emotions. That means that we read scripture through a lens of how we want it to respond to us. Or maybe through other things that have been taught to us, we read it through a lens. And so it's dangerous for us to read God's word through our own emotion. Here's what I mean. It's almost impossible to hear the word of God if you are trying to work out God's purposes with your own emotions and in your own understanding. 
An example, I get angry. He uses the illustration of anger. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I get angry mostly because someone offends me. I'm the offended party. Look what you did that caused me pain or inconvenience. You cut me off in traffic. You decided to write a check in line. We don't do that anymore. Anything like that, that offends me because it, it puts me off, right? I want people to know I'm angry, and so I want to huff and puff, or even to the extent I want to take up God's work into my own hands and make this right and rush to judgment, all the while missing what God's doing. Instead of opening my mouth, I should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. There are things that should anger us. There are things that angered God. Certainly we see that in Jesus. So much so that Jesus walks into the temple one day and sees them, all the trading and the upselling. And he gets so angry that he didn't blow up. No, he goes over into the corner and takes time to make a whip. And Indiana Jones style, he starts slinging that whip around the temple and pushing over tables and making a scene. Why? Not so that focus would be on him. What did he say? That my house shall be called a house of prayer. And you have made it a den of thieves. Point received. There is situations in which we should become angry. And even today. But not just because we're offended because someone has put us off or someone has cost us time or inconvenience. We should be angry about the things that God is angry about. You know all the things of people taking advantage of others. That should make us angry. When we come to God's word, we see God's standard. We begin to hear God speaking to us. But it really moves past hearing, but listening to it or receiving. And that's the second question. Are we receiving the word of God? Not just letting it pass through our ear canals and shaking my hand out of obligation at the end. Hey, good word, pastor. That was a good sermon. No, no, no. It's not about how you listen to the sermon. It's not about how you listen to the word. It's how you obey the word during the week, right? That's the point. Look at verse 21. It talks about how we should be listening or receiving. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. Maybe your version says, with humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Continuous action of save your souls. Not just save your soul, speaking of justification, when you stepped across the line of faith and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you were justified before God, adopted into his family. But this is continuous action, which is able to continue to save your souls. Well, save you from what? Save you from yourself. Save you from your sinful nature, that every one of us, even in this room, that claims to be a follower of God, we still... Sin doesn't reign in our life anymore, but sin does remain. And we always have to deal with the old self, with the old flesh, with our fleshly nature. Paul talks about this so much of taking off the old self and putting on the new self. So under the question, are we receiving the word of God? James is going to instruct them how to do this. Removing the filthiness is a word picture here of the old clothing. Layton, Lydia, and I would go spend uh, summer sometimes at my grandmother's who lived on Caddo Lake. 
And um, it was a rule kind of at grandma's house. Like during the day, you did not stay inside. You were outside. And so when dinner was ready, we would come to my nanny's back porch and we'd be ready to come in and we'd be covered in red clay mostly. The, you know, the red clay surrounded the, the lake there. And she wouldn't let us come in looking like that. You had a grandma or mom like that? No, she had the water hose that we had to strip into our skivvies and she would just spray us down. There's no way you're coming into the house looking the way that you look. And this is kind of the picture that James has here of removing the filthiness, taking off the old clothing, the leftover remnants of our old lifestyle, the, the old habits you used to have, the ways of life that you used to practice when you were lost. When you have the old ways of the old man on, you can't hear, you can't receive the word of God. Until the day that we die, we will have to fight this. The old ways of life will always be calling out to us as the grass is greener on the other side. The old remnants of sin still alive in us. This is why Proverbs instructs us not to lean on our own understanding, right? Remember Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding, but we want to lean on our understanding. We want to try to make sense of what God's doing. And it's not bad necessarily to make sense of it. But oftentimes following God makes no logical sense to us. Part of our old way is trying to make sense of these things. Or rather make sense to our own understanding. If we're honest, we are constantly trying to justify the things that we want to do. And sometimes even using God's word wrongly, out of context, to justify what we want to do. But that's not right, and that grieves the heart of God, and it leads us to a path of destruction. This week, Jason and I were talking about a book we read uh, several years ago, and still resource all the time, Center Church. In there, he talks about the upside-down aspect of the gospel. You may have heard some of this in equipping class today. I'm not sure if Jason used it. He talks about this, not leaning on your own understanding, but understanding that God's economy works opposite of ours. This is what he says, a quote from the book. In Jesus' kingdom, the poor, sorrowful, and persecuted are above the rich, recognized and satisfied. The first shall be last, Matthew 19.30. Why would this be? This reversal is a way of imitating the pattern of Christ's salvation. Though Jesus was rich, he became poor. Though he was a king, he served. Though he was the greatest, he made himself the servant of all. He triumphed over sin, not by taking up power, but by serving sacrificially. He won through losing everything. Man, if that's not a powerful statement. This is a complete reversal of the world's way of thinking, of the world's understanding, of your understanding, which values power and recognition and wealth and status. He goes on to say, the gospel then creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out of an entirely alternate way of being human, racial and class superiority, accrual of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition, all marks of living in the world. James would say, all marks of the filthiness that we have to remove, they represent the opposite of the gospel mindset. Are you receiving the word of God? We should humbly, it says, Receive the word of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive, ESV says, with meekness, the implanted word of God. We should humbly receive the word. 
But how do we do that? Well, we hear it and then we meditate on it. We let it sit in our minds and on our heart. We listen to what the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do with it. For many people, meditation can be a scary word, and they think it requires some special apostolic training, but it doesn't. How many of you know how to worry? Well, then if you can worry, you can meditate. Meditation is just positive worry. And worry, you let negative thoughts, all the what-ifs, drag you down and occupy, occupy your mind and paralyze you with fear. But in meditation, in abiding in God's word, you let God's word and his promises to what will be lift you up and, and turn your thoughts upward. That's all meditation is. And so we read the word of God and we humbly receive it and we let it stir around in our hearts. Let me read this beautiful passage to you. I don't have it on the screen. It was just, it was in my, uh, in my study this week or in my devotion this week, this phrase, and it just struck my heart. 1232, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I don't think you got excited as I get it. I'm going to read it one more time for you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's just such a powerful verse about how awesome our God is. And his, in his perfect love for us, he looks at us plagued with sin and worry, things that separate us. And it's still his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He goes on to say, maybe we don't like the rest of this. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. And provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I read that word, just grabbed my heart and just began to just be there. It's, fear not, little flock. It's God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. So be generous and give things away. And live for eternity. You know, whoever in here has the nicest house and the nicest things, those are good gifts from God. But we don't take them with us. I read a book years ago, and it still kind of haunts me every time I cut the grass. So I started paying someone to cut my grass. That I'm just cutting someone else's grass. If you really think about it. I'm just cutting someone else's grass because I'm not going to live there forever. It's going to go away. Someone else is going to have to cut that grass one day. So I'm not going to cut it now, right? I'm gonna... If you think about it, this is where things are headed. We should live for eternity. We should invest the money and resources that God has given us. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing even to be wealthy. If God has given you much, he, you have been entrusted with much to be a steward of much and to invest and to use all these things as an instrument of righteousness. This verse grabbed my heart this week, and I've been started thinking about all of this, that it's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Are you receiving the word of God? Not just here. What's the last thing God told you? In the secret place, in your chair time, and through a worship song maybe, a conversation with a good friend. What's the last part of God's truth? What did he tell you? Listen, God longs to speak to his people. Not, again, just so we would know the right things, but it would, it would change our character. 
And most everything that he reveals to us requires a major step of faith for us, that we would begin to trust him in whatever he is calling us to. What's God saying to you? It haunts me when I ask that question to people and they go back, well, you know, I was saved when I was 12. I didn't ask you about when you were 12. What's God saying to you right now? The God of the universe that longs to speak to you to such a degree that he sent Jesus, right, to make, make it possible for us to be reunited with him. And he sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, hey, it's better that I go so the Holy Spirit can come. And that Holy Spirit will continue to lead you into all truth. And even right now, the Holy Spirit praying on your behalf things that you don't even know to pray. And illuminating the face of Jesus through the word of God. He wants to speak to you, friend. And we're missing out on it. Are you listening to the word of God with humility, not coming into it like you got it all figured out? A third question is, are you doing the word of God? Are you doing it? Verse 22, but be doers of the word. Not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Man, this is a hard word. There is a deception that happens in all of us that hearing the word alone is good enough. Like I showed up on Sunday, God. I listened to the preacher preach too long. Now I'm good for the week. And James says, oh, brother, be careful. Be careful not just to hear it and not do it. Sermon in a sentence. Hear the word and do what it says. Hear the word and do what it says. If you hear and receive but don't act, it would be better that you have never even heard it. Listen, but don't merely listen. We live in a very religious culture of people that come to church and are charmed but unchanged. If that's not an indictment on our area, I don't know what is. We even ask questions, well, how was, how was church today? Oh, it was good. I sang my favorite worship song. No, what did God say to you today? How were your spirits lifted? How were you able to encourage one another with the word? People hear the message of the word. This happens to me all the time. I'm not kidding. At least once a month, the message of the word They'll find me at the back and say, man, pastor, that was good, but I sure wish my brother-in-law was here to hear that. Or my neighbor, man, they really needed to hear that message. No, you know what? They weren't here, and God didn't bring them here, so it wasn't for them. It was for you, the Word of God, for you, so that we could begin to apply it and to live it out. It says in verse 22, they, they uh, deceive themselves or they delude themselves. This, this picture of intentional neglect. Self-deception, James talks about that a lot in verse 19 and 22 and 26. This idea that I lie to myself to convince myself that I'm better than I am because I don't want to deal with the sin in my life and all the parts of God's character, all the parts of my character that God is intent and in changing. The Word is doing surgery on us, but we don't want it to do surgery. It's this illustration of you laying on the surgery table and the surgeon taking the scalpel and removing the diseased parts in your body. Yet halfway through the surgery, you get frustrated and you take the scalpel and throw it on the floor and you take the diseased part that was removed and stick it back under your skin and limp out 
out of the hospital telling yourself that you're okay. James says, don't do that. Don't deceive yourself. I heard the word and I received the word, but I didn't do the word. He uses this illustration of the mirror. For anyone who's a hearer of the word, in verse 23, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Now, they didn't have mirrors as we have them today, but they could look at a uh, silver or gold or some kind of precious metal that would have some kind of reflection or a pond or a puddle of water, and they could see themselves. And he says they look at themselves and they go away at once and forget what he was like. That's a danger for all of us every morning or every evening when we pick up God's word. That we can read it just to read it so we feel better about ourselves. Not seeking to hear the voice of God. Not seeking to align our lives under the authority of God's word. We read it to read it and move on doing exactly what we wanted to do in the first place. Listen, Jesus didn't teach to change people's knowledge, but to change people's lives. There's this thing they say in AA, this phrase, just do the next right thing. AA was a program formed out of a Christian church, helping people overcome addiction and I like that phrase, just do the next right thing. When we start thinking about all the things there is to do and how broken the world is and how God needs to move and how we got to go and fix it, we, we become the Savior. You just can't even think about that. Let God's grace be sufficient for now and for today. And my wife has to remind me, this, uh, remind me of this all the time. Just do the next right thing. When Jesus would intervene in someone's life, you'll recognize this. He usually gave them one simple step to follow next. So he cleansed the leper, and he said, go show yourself to the priest, which would fulfill the Old Testament law, one simple thing to do. And he heals a paralytic, and he tells him to take up the mat and walk. And he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He said, hey, give her something to eat. And he washes the disciples' feet, and he tells them, you go and do likewise. Not the next huge thing, not the next paradigm-shifting thing, just the next right thing. We've made this way more complicated than it should be. So as you hear the voice of God, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, write someone a note, give someone a gift, forgive that person again. Apologize, repent, invite a neighbor over, share the gospel with someone, delete the app that's leading you into sin or wasting your time. Just the next right thing. As you follow the Holy Spirit, just do the next right thing. Eugene Peterson used to define discipleship like this, and I love this. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. You've heard me say that. A long obedience in the same direction. When you look back on your life, hopefully this will be true of you. A long obedience to the ways and words of Christ. A long obedience in the same direction. Just doing the next right thing and the next right thing and the next right thing. Listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Saying yes to it when it doesn't make sense. And yeah, you'll mess up. And yeah, you'll get it wrong sometimes. And that's okay. You just keep going, doing the next right thing. My buddy Aaron Clayton call me this week and I, I'm sure I've shared this illustration that really impacted me I may even shared it the last week or two about the Chinese missionary did I tell you that that Jason and I heard at Verge I was talking to Aaron about uh, Aaron Clayton at Remedy about just the discipleship movement and how we do this and we just get it so convoluted 
it was incredible as he's planted these 100,000 churches or whatever it was. And most of these little small house churches are in little apartments, mostly led by teenage women. The movement of God is doing such incredible things over there. And he said, that's the motto. He just read the word. This is what the word says. Now go do that. When we come back next week, we'll have that go. And we read the word again. And we say, okay, now you go obey that word. Come back next week and tell us how it works. That is discipleship. That's really what it is. A long obedience in the same direction. And people say, well, Luke, isn't that legalism? No, that's not legalism. That is discipleship. We need accountability to come around us to help us live that out. We're here of the word not a doer like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror and he goes once uh, away and forgets what he looks like. I've literally seen people run out of the service to distract themselves with ministry and things to do so they don't have to deal with the own sin in their lives. Look how we are supposed to respond in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The right way to respond to the truth is to hear it, to humbly receive it, and to do it. It says, blessed is that man who looks intently. It says... And the New American Standard, I like that, looks intently, meaning searching for its application, abiding in it, doesn't forget it, but lives it out. This explains why some grow and mature and others don't. It explains why I've worked with some teenagers who've been a believer for a month or two, and they're more spiritually mature than some people who've claimed to be, have been saved for 40 or 50 years. Because although they might be present to hear the word and even receive it, they don't act upon it. They explain it away. Some of us apply it and obey it. Others are charmed by it, but never changed. And as if it wasn't tough enough, let's look at this little parting shot he gives us in the last uh, little group there, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious... Man, he just knows where to hit you and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart. This person's religious religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, meaning a religion that honors God, that is a, a, a worshipful aroma to him, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Doesn't mean that we would that the world itself wouldn't get on us. No, it just means that the the thing that our heart desires would not be the same as what the world desires. Instead, true religion produces this selfless, self-giving love into people who can't return. What is true about most times about the widow, especially in this day, the widow 
and the orphan is they didn't have much to give back. They weren't in prominent places of authority or fame. It wasn't by serving them that you were going to win this next philanthropic award. No, no, this was this is loving like Jesus would, that we would love these people in such a way that we didn't need to be seen. I want to end by just asking you the simple question is what is God telling you to do? What is he reminding you of? And will you obey him? Not just listen, but do. What is he asking you to do? Some of you are not part of God's family. You may have played a long time these religious games, but you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And because of that, you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you illuminating the face of Jesus and leading you to truth and bringing conviction. And so today would be a day I would encourage you to step across this line of faith and trust him. We're going to take communion in a minute. And we're going to celebrate that very thing again of all that Christ has done on our behalf. Jesus would tell those disciples that they were to go and proclaim his death until he comes again. So this is this reminder that we have nearly every week that we would take the bread and dip in the cup and remember the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf so that we could live in freedom and truth today. Would you pray with me just right where you're at? I'm going to ask Philip to come up and he's going to lead us in worship in just a minute and our communion service can go ahead and come up. But I really want you, even if you never leave your seat, I just want you to talk to God. Maybe your life's just been so busy and so noisy that you didn't, you just have no clue what God's saying right now. Maybe you've just been so undisciplined to get in His Word. We'd love to help you with that. If you'd like help on any of those things, you just mark that on the card or find us in the back. Again, the prayer team's going to be in the back if you need to pray with someone. Guys and ladies on that team. But before we move forward with anything, would you just ask God, would you ask the Holy Spirit that he reveal what the next right thing he's asking you to do? Maybe it deals with faith and trust. Maybe it deals with sacrifice or repentance. Maybe you need to find someone in this very room and extend forgiveness or ask for forgiveness. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. It's living and active. Lord, I confess, just personally, uh, often flippantly, I deal with your word. Let other things in my life push it out. I memorize things that are worthless and neglect things that are eternal, like your word. Lord, help. Help me, help us as a church, as a faith family, to love your word. Because through the word, we see who you are, Jesus. As the Holy Spirit shines the light on you. And Jesus, when we see you, we see the Father.
would deal. I pray right now for our people. Would you deal with sin? If there's existing sin in our life, would you, through the Holy Spirit, just bring it up right now? And church, I don't want you to turn this into me, but whatever God says, I just want you to write it down. Sometimes it's just an act of faith just to write that next thing down. What's God asking you to do? Be more disciplined in the Word. Forgive a family member. Say you're sorry. Just the next thing. Share your faith with a coworker. Bring a meal to a neighbor. Sit your family down. Share what God's saying in your own heart. What's the next right thing? I just encourage you just to write it down so you can remember the parable of the sower and the seed. The seed scattered sometimes on hard places, sometimes on shallow places, and the enemy comes and takes it up. And we would write it down so we'd remember it. Holy Spirit, do in your people what you want to do. I pray that we would respond and obey, not being foolish self-deceivers to hear it and not do it but people who act in obedience to you in Jesus name we pray amen communion servers are here prayer team in the back you come when you're ready